This is Tell Me What To Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev and this week we will continue our special series of podcasts where Ben Hunter, our fiction guru, chats with debut authors. This is our second episode of A Date With A Debut. First up in this series, Ben sits down with Megan Albany, author of no-nonsense contemporary novel The Very Last List of Vivian Walker. Then Ben sits down with Victoria Brookman, author of the new novel Burnt Out, a biting critique of modern society. Then, in our final interview in this miniseries, Ben sits down with Kimberly Allsop to discuss her rip-snorting new book, Love and Other Puzzles. Check the show notes below for timestamps for both interviews, as well as links to all books mentioned. Now over to Ben's interview with Megan Albany, author of The Very Last List of Vivian Walker. Hello, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and today I'm really excited to be on the Zoom with Megan Albany. She's a proud First Nations woman of Kalkadoon and European heritage. She's worked as an editor, a scriptwriter, a songwriter, a composer, and a journalist. Now she's adding to that list, author. She's got a debut novel. It is called The Very Last List of Vivian Walker. It is out now. And it will make you laugh and it will make you cry. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Ben. It's absolutely lovely to be here. Thank you for joining me. Um, It's a mighty big resume you're amassing. Uh, Have you always been a kind of restless creative? And and what's your your relationship with the written word? Um, what's, What's encouraged you to make this turn to writing? Uh, I have definitely always been a restless creative. I've moved, I think I worked out I'd moved about 50 times by the time I was 40. So yes, restless would describe me very well. Um, And I've always written, I think since I was little, I actually had my first thing published when I was about eight in a book called My World by the Kids of Australia. And I wrote some little thing about what it was was like being me at eight or however old I was. So I've always written. um, It's just been something I've always done. Um, So I guess my relationship to the written word is just um, an everyday kind of relationship. Uh, Written or spoken words are just a very huge part of my life. I love that. Uh, Tell our listeners about this novel you've just put out, the very last list of Vivian Walker. Uh, it's it's a cracker. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, the very last list of Vivian Walker is about um, Viv, who's a, a, a fabulously real character. Some might say too real, um, but she's she's dying, and like most women, she still has a long list of things that she needs to get done, including cleaning the fridge room so she doesn't have time to be spiritually enlightened just because she's dying so it's kind of a book about an an ordinary woman in a very um tedious relationship who's dying (laughs) i couldn't have said that better myself Uh, she's she's remarkably ordinary or at least she sees herself that way and and dying is almost a just a frustration just another thing she's got to deal with isn't it uh and so she's got she's got a list. <laughs> the whole novel works around lists, which I I love. I'm I'm a pro list person, uh, but it's 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 you could call it a bucket list, but it's it's nothing like the kind of 
stereotypes of bucket lists you'd, you'd imagine, you know, hiking in the Himalayas and swimming with dolphins and, uh, uh, you know, the round trip of Australia. There's, there's no, there's no uh, enormous feats of humanity on this bucket list. It's, it's, um, it's just a bit of life admin or, or death admin, if you'd call it that. So let me ask you, Megan, are you, are you, are you a pro list person and are you a pro bucket list person? Oh, look, I'm definitely a list, a list maker, a list writer, just ask my own husband. Um, and it's funny you should say life admin because my friend who inspired this book, that's exactly what she used to call it, was life admin. Um, so, yes, I think lists are pretend that we're in control of our lives and, and, and get on with it. I don't mind a bucket list, but look, your bucket list has also got your yeah, life admin list. You know, if you want to take that trek to the Himalayas, you've got to get the passport organised, you've got to get the tickets, you've got to do all that. So I don't think life is like it is <laughs> in the movies because the movies never show you um, the person organising the entire trip and making sure that they've packed all the right things and making sure that their husband and their children have packed all the right things and then realising at the last minute that you haven't actually finished everything and then being stressed and screaming at each other when you're getting on the plane to fulfill your bucket list so um yes i don't mind the odd bucket list but i think it's doesn't all happen magically like it does on bewitched mm, yeah well said um and i won't i won't ask you to describe your, your personal life but uh, <laughs> uh i can only imagine that you like me and so many people i know have had someone close to them go through cancer or a similar illness and immediately there's all of this language and all of these stereotypes that get attached to that uh, and we put labels on on an experience that is actually really normal and <laughs> as Vivian would put it routine and infuriating uh, would you like to take this opportunity on mic to uh, call out <laughs> um, particular uh, shittinesses, uh, whether it's uh, referring to people as battlers or um, saying that they're so brave? Uh, what is it that uh, you you wish you wish people wouldn't do? Oh, look, there's you know there's. One, one of my friends, when her mother died, and her mother was, was gorgeous and she was an older, an older woman, she's like, oh, they had a good innings. That's always a good one. Um, <laughs> you know, I think actually when you lose someone who's older, <laughs> you feel like, well, they were around for longer and they get this immortality about them that you don't, you don't think um, they're ever going to die. But I actually, it's not so much what people say for me if, when someone's dying as people saying nothing. To be honest, I'd rather they say, they rang him and said they had a good innings, they were a battler, they said something. Because I think the, the worst faux pas that happens when someone dies is people don't know what to say. They don't want to offend anyone and so they say absolutely nothing and they're kind of missing in action. There's, you know, the, the tumbleweeds roll through. Um, I think that's the worst thing that can happen. But certainly people can behave fabulously badly when people are dying. They can say ridiculously stupid things. They can have Barneys in the hospital. I've seen it. <laughs> you know, people, 
people think that you're going to turn into suddenly <laughs> someone's dying oh my goodness our completely dysfunctional family is suddenly going to be so well behaved and enlightened and fabulous no they're still going to be bogans in the hospital <laughs> they're still going to do all the wrong things say all the wrong things be annoying as all buggery um yes yeah, so i think there is a, a bit of an illusion that because someone's dying suddenly the dalai lama will come down in amongst us and there will be peace and love and spirituality um, but actually when someone's dying you're in um crisis and there's a big drama and most people don't um put forward their best selves in a crisis i think most people actually often put forward their worst selves in a crisis and then beat themselves up because they're not being their best you're not going to be your best when someone you love and adore is dying and you can do nothing about it and it's all out of your control so you try and control whatever the hell you can whether that's your husband you know the nurse um the mess in the kitchen you just try and control everything so I think we just all have to have a bit more compassion for our our foibles. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 really well put, and I I, th I think that's that's the that's the lesson Vivian has for us all. You know, Viv, she 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 lacks self compassion a lot, uh, but she's gosh darn, she's just trying to do her very best and and get get the most out of every little moment. Uh, and yeah, it's it's almost like you, you wish you wish you could just kind of be there to just give her permission to do that. Mm. <laughs> we could just reach out into the book and say, it's all right. Mm. Um, to her and to her husband and her son, who's <laughs> <it was> hilarious. <laughs> it kind of dances around uh, something that talk gets talked about a lot, which is this idea of toxic positivity. Um, mm. and, and there's some mention of Tony Robbins and, and the motivational uh, speaker movement and, you know, that kind of uh, supermarketed, super clean, you know, often very rich and very white kind of fanaticism. Um, and, of course, that, that, that comes from a good place. Mm. Um, but at best, it, it can just appear ridiculous <laughs> to, <laughs> to people who aren't ready for it. And, and at worst, I, I guess it can be explained or it can be exclusionary. Uh, where, where do you sit on stuff like that? Oh, look, you know, I've been to Tony Robbins. I've done my fair share. That's why I can write about him. But I, I think that what I really um, <laughs> think that, you know, when you talk about toxic positivity, we can sometimes, you know, it's only acceptable. I think it's perfectly acceptable to be ambitious and all of those, you know, things happy excited but it also needs to be perfectly acceptable to be completely depressed when you're depressed completely devastated when you're devastated and completely dysfunctional if you're trying your best and i think you summed it up pretty well like viv really is trying her best and what someone's best looks like isn't always what we think the best should look like if people are doing you know the the best they can you know with their life that they've had to date and and Viv didn't have an easy life and, and I've loved how many people have understood that I wanted people to see when you're standing next to that person who's a rude cow in the supermarket and you just want to um, jump straight into judgment about her um, maybe have some compassion because you don't know the life 
that they've lived and you don't know that that's not the best that she can do on that particular day it's the last straw isn't always you're dying the last straw is this is all I can do today you know there's so many demands made on us to be perfect and successful and fit and fabulous and you know insta worthy in every time and there's no photos of us all looking like crap and and so there's this unreal expectation I think that's the problem I don't have a I don't have an issue with people wanting to do their best, but I do have an issue with people feeling like if they're not being their best 100% of the time, then they're a failure. Like, I think that's, you know, we, we've, we're, it's, it's really hard for people to live up to an expectation that isn't true. The magazines aren't true. Everything's photoshopped, all of that stuff. You know, we need to just give ourselves a big break, especially if someone's dying. And we need to see, give, give yourself permission to be the worst behaved you've ever been. Just let it all hang out and don't try to be spiritually enlightened, just survive it. Oh, yeah. Yes, well said. Uh, and and it, it, it's not just Viv who's at her wit's end, you know. It's, mm. it's her husband, Clint, and the son, Ethan, as well. Um, mm. And you, we, get, we get their different perspectives. And, and they've, they've also got their own lists. So this begs the next question. They're all hilarious. Who did you enjoy writing the most? I love them all. I kind of liked writing Clint because my husband wants to get a T-shirt made up that says, I'm not Clint. <laughs> and I loved writing Clint because whenever <laughs> I'd read it to my writer's group, they'd all start looking at, at Mark, my husband, like, is that you? Do you do that? <laughs> so there was a wicked evil part of me that liked writing Clint. Um, but I, I loved Viv um, and I, I loved Auntie Sugar. She's completely that over-the-top person that we'd all love to be. She's got no filter, so she was great fun to write. Um, and I, I loved writing Ethan. My, my, um, my own son is, is older than that, but I just love that, that age. And, um, yeah, he was just gorgeous to write. I fell in love with Ethan. I, I was heartbroken when I, had to, when I had to write the letter to him saying goodbye. That was probably the hardest bit of the whole book for me to write. Yeah, I, oh, I, could, I can only imagine that. That's... That was that was that was a moment. Yeah. Um, I'll ask a, a, a much less um, heavy question. Uh, do you share the the love of uh, good tea that Viv shares? <laughs> yes, I am very much a tea drinker. And again, my my gorgeous friend who um, inspired the book was an even bigger tea drinker than me, and I was left with a. Uh, a huge inheritance of tea. <laughs> so yes, I'm a, I'm a big tea drinker. Although oh, sadly, sadly these days I, I can only drink herbal tea, and not black tea, because I tend to get migraines. But I do still, you know, if I'm going all out there at party time, I will have a chai with black tea. I'll still do it, and I will still have, you know, a very good Russian caravan wild. if it's on offer. I know I'm very wild and crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of wild and crazy. I read that you were recording or composing music to accompany this story uh, as as a kind of multi-talented professional. Is, is that true? Oh yeah, just had to show off, you know. <laughs> no, we. I've always been. A, I've always had the two. <laughs> always had the two careers hand in hand, and um, it was just Mark and I, my husband and I, have written. Uh, music for soundtracks and I've always loved that when you've got a story that the music goes with so I was just 
uh, really inspired to write some music that would be the musical journey of the book. Um, so that that was a lot of lot of fun and um, just trying to think of the characters when when I was writing them and, and even trying to think of the sort of music that they would like and trying to write to the book was really you know it was a great fun process and part of me uh, realized I was quite insane doing that because I was trying to finish I have a two book deal with Hachette so I was finishing a book or editing the book writing the album recording the album trying to finish the second book so I don't know if I'd do it again but um Ooh. I liked it the first time <laughs> um and on top of all the all that amazing work I, I also read that you've done some incredible things uh in the indigenous community um particularly uh in the field of journalism and and working uh with the youth so-called justice system uh can you tell me a little bit about that yeah look i was inc incredibly honored and privileged to work with um the wonderful gavin jones who started uh, the deadly awards which were the national indigenous awards and um while i was working with him on deadly vibe magazine uh we came up together with this idea to do a, a magazine for um aboriginal youth injustice because obviously you know there's a far too big representation of um, not just adult Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in jail, but also um, our, our young people. And so we wanted to make that um, something that was, what was fantastic about um, Gav was it was always for him about representing Aboriginal people in a positive light because there are so many extraordinary doctors and lawyers and politicians and musicians and sports people that don't um especially not when i first started with with gav he managed to turn some of that around but there wasn't very much positive media around aboriginal people so um in vibe magazine which was a magazine we did together was really um you know about role models there was stuff to do with that was you know for, for kids injustice around you know sdis and drugs and stuff like that just information but it was really showing positive role models, um, you know, every every cover would be an amazing footballer or, you know, Jess Malboy or someone like that, Christine Anu, someone who is doing amazing things. Um, and also people in the community and just showing uh, our young people that there are so many role models in our community. You don't have to look very far to find people who are doing extraordinary, amazing things. And, um, and that was really a passion uh, for for me and one of the songs that's actually on the album is dedicated to um to gavin uh who unfortunately passed away and it's called whatever you need and that's just about that song was written um for i'm hoping to use that to raise money for aboriginal suicide prevention um and yeah so that he he was an amazing person to work for and the deadlies was all about showing people just how extraordinary um you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are in this country and, and giving that a, a really big platform. And, and when he started that with Rhoda Roberts, who was, you know, is obviously one of our most amazing women, um, that conversation wasn't out there. And, and I believe that those two people single-handedly changed the, um, the representation of um, First Nations people in the media. Uh, we will definitely have to look out for that album, particularly that song that that sounds brilliant. 
Um, I'm now going to transition us to a ridiculous line of questioning. Uh, this, this, this podcast is going out as part of a, a kind of a mini series that we're doing you know, around debut fiction uh, and, and the excitement of that. And because of, because of the pandemic, it's, it's hard to get out as a debut author and, and meet potential readers. So just, it's like a speed dating thing. We're trying to just int- introduce uh, some great new talent to, to readers. And what, what more perfect way to do that than, than a kind of perfect match style set of dating questions. So oh, here comes question one. <laughs> if you had to pair your novel, the very last list of Vivian Walker, uh, Sommelier style with, with the perfect beverage, uh, it could be posh wine or a cocktail, or it could be something from the kitchen cupboard. Uh, what would be the perfect beverage to enjoy alongside your novel? Oh, it would definitely have to be an English breakfast tea. Leaf, brewed properly, teapot heated. Loose leaf. Loose leaf, put a cosy on it, let it brew properly. Your choice of milk. Excellent. Now, question number two, where would be best suited for reading your novel? Uh, would it be uh, in an old armchair in a deep, dusty old library? Uh, on a beach chair on a tropical paradise? or hunched over a uh, takeaway coffee on a crowded inner city bus on your way to work? I think the best place to read this book is on a day where you're too depressed to get out of bed and you're been in your pyjamas for four hours and you crawl back into bed with your house a mess. That's the best place to read this book. Brilliant. Uh, does your novel have a spirit animal? If not, uh, which, which animal might you choose? <laughs> <laughs> I like that question. <laughs> uh, spirit animal. <laughs> Nothing's jumping to mind. <laughs> Maybe a oh. <laughs> it's a wild question. <laughs> What's it? Usually, there's an animal that kind of has a big play in a book, um, but not so much in this yeah. case. No, uh, I'm thinking yeah, it's, that's tricky. Something to if there was, on. you know what? It would probably be a camel because they're kind of rude and they spit at you, <laughs> and, and they're not well-behaved camels, so they're a bit stinky and obnoxious. <laughs> That's the closest I but can. But they're get. gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, I love that. A camel. Uh, and uh, final question: uh, What is the ideal date? For your novel is it uh, a spiritual hike in the mountains is it a wild night of dancing in the city or is it um curled up with uh, takeaway food uh, on the couch with a, a rom-com um the best date for my novel mm. <laughs> just well they're not very romantic the characters so look the best I think the best that they would do <laughs> would be some um <laughs> I think it would probably be the takeaway. Um, I would have to say takeaway and just being able to clear just enough space on the filthy kitchen table to find some room to put it. That's where that would be the best day. And you might be lucky to get a bit of, um, you know, a little cup of tea thrown in there if, if you're lucky. But I think, I think just um, takeaway. Yeah, some greasy Joe's takeaway. Hey, you know, Alvini, thank you for your Brutal honesty. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you so much. It was really lovely to um 
to talk and they were fantastic questions and I love Perfect Match. I haven't been on a date for oh, a long time. <laughs> the very last list of Vivian Walker is out now and it is published by Hachette. Now over to Ben's interview with Victoria Brookman, author of Burnt Out. Hi, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and with me on a Zoom call is Victoria Brookman. She is an author, an activist, and an academic based out of the Blue Mountains on Darragan and Nagara country. Uh, she's worked as a staffer and later as a candidate for federal labor and is one of the founding members of Destroy the Joint, which is very cool. She's also currently working on a doctorate at Western Sydney University and she has a debut novel. It's called Burnt Out. Victoria, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, I'm really glad we could do this and have you on. Um, your novel uh, came out right at the top of the year um, and everyone was kind of uh, busy dying in New South Wales. Oh and we didn't really, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a horrible time to like do things and go out and, and talk about things. So I'm glad we're, yeah. I'm really glad we can do this now. Yeah. Um, because it sounds like a hell of a book. I guess I'll, I'll start by asking, uh, how, now that it's been out in the market for a few mm -hmm. weeks and you've been having people tag you and just strangers who have read your book and uh, now professing to love you, um, <laughs> how, does, how does that feel? Is, is, is that uh, a, a good experience or has it made you a nervous wreck? Look, it's been wonderful. Um, I, I have loved seeing everyone coming through with their feedback. Um, people are calling it a page turner. Um, they're saying they finished it like in one day, which is just the ultimate praise that a writer can get. Um, so it's been so lovely. People in the book community are just such wonderful, welcoming people. That's so good to hear. Um, for people who uh, haven't picked up Burnt Out yet, um, what can they expect? Tell us about the book. Yeah, so um, the novel begins with my main character, Callie, losing her husband and her cat. And then a bushfire comes through and burns her home while she shelters next door with the neighbours. So when she comes out and sees her house in ruins, she's got a news reporter waving a microphone in her face and asking all kinds of questions. And she gets so upset, Callie gets so upset, that she yells at Australia's rich and powerful to, uh, about their inaction on climate change, ranting at them to effing do something. It doesn't say effing in the book, obviously. Um, her rant goes viral. <laughs> And soon one of those rich and powerful people, <clears throat> a Sydney tech billionaire, offers her a place to stay in a boathouse um, in front of his mansion on Sydney Harbour so that she can rewrite this novel that she supposedly lost in the fire. Um, suddenly she has fallen on her feet, it seems. Her publisher loves her, the media loves her, the rich people love her, and she's the new face of the climate movement in Australia. But things aren't quite as they seem. So how far is Callie willing to go to maintain this success? And how long till this house of cards comes tumbling down? The house of cards. Oh, I love it. Uh, it. It sounds frighteningly real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of... Uh, uh, concept like it, it sounds like something that can be drawn very closely from the news cycle 
Uh, did you take inspiration from, uh, you know, Honolulu, ScoMo, and um, yeah. Get Fucked from Nelligan? Yes. <laughs> Um, absolutely. There was the Paul Parker and Nelligan. Um, there was the woman down in Cabago. There was that time when ScoMo tried to go and shake that fiery's hand and the dude was like, get away from me. Um, that whole summer was absolutely traumatic and horrible for so many people, including me and my family. But um, it was also just ripe with inspiration. Um, certain things you just, <clears throat> you can't make up, right? Like the PM in Hawaii, what's the chances? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think he's got a bit of a habit of that. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, you, you, you're up in the Blue Mountains, so you've, yeah. you've had you've had real real close experience with bushfire it is um uh i grew up there mm -hmm. uh and when it comes it is it is actually horrifying yeah. um but it's also just an existential thing that would hang over us every dry summer we'd be like is it going to happen is it going to mm -hmm. happen is it going to happen has that been has that been the same for you yeah, absolutely. So we'd been in the mountains for about four years by the time the black summer came around. And, you know, we moved in here knowing that it's a, you know, high fire danger area. And uh, we always expected that, you know, we might have to get out of here. But that summer when there are all those catastrophic days and it hadn't rained heavily for so long and the ground was so dry, it was taking it to a whole other level, wasn't it? it um, so we evacuated um, a handful of times ourselves on those really bad fire danger days. Um, sometimes we went and stayed on the floor at my mum's house or in like a spare bedroom at other relatives' places. And um, sometimes we went, you know, just kind of walked around Penrith Shopping Centre for like the entire day with all our stuff in the boot, just, oh, just hoping just everything. Just to be in the fine. air conditioning. Yeah, to be in the air conditioning. But also, I mean, there were times that summer when the RFS people literally said, "Look, just don't be on the." don't be in the mountains that day. Like, it's going to be so yeah, bad. Yeah, don't be on the roads. Yeah. And we, as I'm sure you'd know, and anyone would know, being having been in the mountains, there's so many places where there's, like, a single road on a ridgeline leading in and out of a bunch of streets yeah. where heaps of people live, and that's the case for us. And so we really had to get out because if the fire came suddenly, we would be stuck in traffic. The fire engines wouldn't be able to get down because everyone would be trying to get out. And... Like it was incredibly dangerous. So that was why we would just leave. But it was, I mean, it didn't stop the anxiety. I would just sit there while we'd left and just like look at all these fire watching apps, like the wind and the satellite hotspots and the RFS and just like ache, ache for the mountains, seeing the fire, you know, coming up towards communities, especially around Wentworth Falls up the, up the King's Tableland Road. That was just horrible. Oh yeah, no, I drove out there um, after we got the kind of all clear, and I think it was it was it was during the first lockdowns as well. Oh yeah, um, we did that too. Same spot. Because uh, yeah, I, I had a relative um, around there who lived alone, uh, and we needed to get stuff to her, so we, yeah. we did the you know <laughs> we did the thing that we we're not meant to do was in like drive out um, of town during the lockdown. Um, to get things to her, and yeah, we 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 went down King Tableslands just to just to see it. It's just like, yeah, you know, when it's green, it is. It, there's so much activity 
<laughs> there's well, so much noise, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, when it's been burnt, it's just it's just deathly quiet. It's like being in an abandoned warehouse or something. Yeah, and um, um, it's we wild. we went down there in March 2020, um, and mm. it was the the ground was all spongy and kind of bouncy from the ash and. It was horrendous. And then we went, we did that same drive and went down to the lookout that looks over Baragarang, the water supply. And that walk to that lookout has completely changed because it was overrun by fire. It used to be all rainforesty and like this big dark canopy above you. And now it's like much younger trees, a lot more shrubs, a lot of grass everywhere. Like it would... It's it's interesting how you know nature bounces back in its own way, but it's it's not going to be the same. Yeah, yeah, permanent changes. Mm. Um, it's a frightening thing. Um, I guess most most people would have an experience of, of, of bushfires in in Australia, but it might just be through the news, like Channel Nine and and smog over Sydney Harbour and just endless live crosses to. Mm. Um, just journos standing in front of um, still fire trucks or like in a, a crisis centre um, yeah. where <laughs> nothing seems to be happening. Um, uh, what, what's, the, what's the real experience that you wish people were more aware of? Um, I think that in the Black Summer, people got a lot of an idea of what it was like for us. Um, in terms of the smoke in the air, like we spent an entire summer inside. I've got three kids and they just like sat in the air conditioning all day watching, you know, watching Netflix. Like we had towels indoors. Um, we had um, ash falling from the sky, burnt leaves. It was really horrible. Mm. And we would walk out and I could look down the end of my street and sometimes I'd just see a big smoke plume rising from the southern fires. Like it was, it was quite surreal. But um, what the, I think the worst bit of it was the waiting. That went on for months and we were just waiting for the fires to come. <laughs> and, and to the point where at some time, like sometimes we'd have these conversations with neighbours where we were all like, God, I kind of wish it had just come already. Like, I'm sick of, I'm so sick of this. Like, bring it on. Like, come through, you know. Like, this is, you know, we're all, like, living our lives on hold that entire summer. And it wasn't like you could just go down the south coast or go up the north coast because everywhere was burning. <laughs> it was insane. Yeah, there was, there was no way to get out. Mm. Um, and I, I guess the, the frightening thing is that, that that's meant to become the norm. Yeah. Uh, unless we do something really drastic in terms of uh, changing our, our our forest management, but even still, climate change is just going to make those like long, dry summers uh, just uh, the total norm. Um, mm. So, uh, can can tech billionaires solve all our problems? Um, I wish they would, but they're not, um, they don't seem very promising at the moment. They seem more focused on like, you know, getting into space for like, not even for like scientific purposes, just for like space tourism to make a bit of extra money, like just for fun. Um, you know, I think there, there's a lot that people with a lot of money could do in terms of putting money into research and technology and 
um, you know, using their potential to donate to political candidates and parties to actually force political change in a progressive, like, pro-environment way, but it doesn't seem to be happening right now. Yeah, I guess I guess that's that's the other side of it. Is is w- what will it take for for politics to take it seriously? If mm. um, if uh, if uh, <laughs> the media splash of uh, Scott Morrison uh, refusing to get his uh, hand shook is <laughs> uh, uh, was so damaging, um, uh, what's it going to take for police to do stuff? Or 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 is that just the kind of thing where you know, they just wear it, they just cop it on the chin and, and then just keep taking checks from gas companies and expect it to just all come out in the wash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know it seems like a, just a lot of short-term gain and, you know, power games and the rest of us suffer and, you know, our descendants will suffer for generations if we don't get this stuff sorted out. It's crazy to me. Uh, are you still involved in the Labour Party? Um, I'm still a member, but I'm not really actively involved. I, I go and hand out on election day for my local candidates because they're lovely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not really hear. in there having policy debates at the moment. Fair enough. Uh, do, do you think uh, we'll have a different prime minister by the end of the year? Oh, I sure hope so. I think, um, you know, one really disturbing thing about being on social media is seeing people being like, oh, there's no difference between ScoMo and Albo. Oh, and it's like, oh, like, right. look, there's a difference. <laughs> yeah, there is really a difference and you need to recognise that and, like, vote with your feet. Um, I think people are really tired of um, politics and the news cycle and are, like, looking for escapist kind of fantastical outs and being like, oh, I'll just, like, vote independent and that'll solve all my problems. But either way, we're going to have one of those men as Prime Minister. It's going to be <laughs> Albo or ScoMo. And so you need you need to decide, like, which one you want. And I think ScoMo's had a good run, you know? Like, it's it's time to switch. Yeah. This is, this is a, a, a funny, enjoyable book, right? This, is, yeah. this, this thing yeah, is... Yeah. Um, this thing is meant to be a bit of a, a, a breath of fresh air, even if it's, <laughs> if it's choked with bushfire smoke. Um, uh, we we don't we don't like to talk about climate change um, mm. or the destruction of our world in um, in that kind of that mode, that medium that uh, you know we in the industry we call it commercial fiction. Yeah. What we really mean is that you know, books that people would like just love to read and enjoy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you're, you're doing it though. Uh, was, was your publisher happy for you to do that? And um, do you expect that we'll finally start to read more and more, um, uh, you know, mainstream, inverted commas, authors uh, writing on this field? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm definitely not the first Australian women's commercial fiction author to touch on climate change. Um, I know there's a bunch of other people who write about that and write around kind of other political themes. Um, one that springs to mind is Penelope Janu. She She's written several books that kind of touch on climate change as well. Um, and she's quite prolific as a commercial women's fiction author. Um, but I, you know, this was my debut novel. So th- 
um, HarperCollins picked it up because they liked it. <laughs> so I, I, they were, they never ever said don't write about it. So I guess they're happy about it. <laughs> um, and I, I guess, I guess I, you know, for me, it, I just set out to write a page turner. I just wanted to write something that people wanted to read. And then um, everything else from that summer bled into that. And, um, and I, you know, I think that like discussions about climate change and politics can come in many forms. And, and this is, this is my preferred form. <laughs> and you, you've got a character in this book who, who, who's an author with a, an overdue book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, 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 is, is that going to become, you know, are you, you going to um, become a career author? We're going to have more books in the work from you. Um, yeah. and, and are, are you stressing? You're sweating bullets um, over deadlines already. I'm I'm not really stressing at the moment. I'm um I'm kind of in a weird way contracted to write my novel for my doctorate at Western Sydney Uni. Um, so that's what I've been working on, and they they are the ones paying my bills at the moment. So there's <laughs> I'm just relaxing into that one, getting that one done, um and um and then hoping definitely to write more stuff for HarperCollins if they have me. <laughs> that sounds excellent. And well, we look forward to reading um, everything you do, wherever you go. Um, before I let you go, Victoria, um, I now have a, a ridiculous line of questioning where, um, yeah, we're, we're talking to a number of debut authors and um, we've got a bit of a, a Valentine's Day uh, speed dating theme. Um, awesome. If you ever watched um, Perfect Match um, back way back when uh, you might you might get a hint of what's to come so okay. so here comes your first um okay. the debut question uh if you had to pair your novel with a a beverage sommelier style um what would be the perfect drink to drink alongside burnt out would it be a posh cocktail or a fancy glass of wine what would you choose look i think in terms of the book's content i'd probably go with a nice glass of prosecco <laughs> But in my heart, yes, I don't know why, but I want to say Perno. But yeah, I think maybe a martini. Look, I can't decide. Let's Ooh. go with martini. <laughs> I think anyone who's read the book will understand why it's a martini. <laughs> Very good. Um, uh, where would be most suited to reading your novel? Would it be um, in a leather armchair in the back of a dusty old library? Or would it be um, on a beach in a tropical paradise? Or would it be you know, hunched over a, a takeaway coffee on a, in a city bus? Um, look, I think a lot of people have enjoyed it on the beach, but beach weather seems to be, you know, up and down these days. So I'll take the bus. Very good. Uh, does your novel have a spirit animal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a cat. <laughs> yeah. It's a very specific cat. Its name is Killer. <laughs> Um, and final question, uh, what would be the ideal date for your novel? Uh, would you take it on a spiritual hike in the mountains or would you go for a wild night of dancing in the city or uh, would it just be you know, a home-cooked meal and a, a cheesy movie at home on the couch? Um, look, actually, I think that um, the ideal date would uh, be a nice fireside chat in front of a, you know, a mountain's fire pit. Yeah, looking oh, up at the stars. Yeah, really romantic stuff. <laughs> Martinian hand. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't really read in the dark, can you? But, you know, I think it's the vibe. It's the vibe we're going for. Yeah, bring a torch. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Victoria Brookman, thank you very much for playing. And um, congratulations again on this fantastic new book. Thanks. I hope everyone really enjoys it. Burnt Out is published by HarperCollins and you can get a copy of it right now from booktopia.com.au. Finishing our Date with the Debut series, now over to Ben's interview with Kimberly Allsop, author of Love and Other Puzzles. Hi, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager. Thanks for listening. And through the miracle of Zoom chat today, I am talking to Kimberly Allsop. Kimberly is a Sydney writer who has worked in bookselling and publishing for over a decade. And she's also contributed to a number of Australian websites, mastheads. Um, and she co-hosts a rom-com podcast called Meet Cute. Her gorgeous debut novel is called Love and Other Puzzles. Kim, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. This is my first interview. Oh, may it be the first of many. Um, <laughs> you, you have the same publisher who has done uh, a, a spate of mega best-selling fiction. And um, uh, she has uh, a habit of writing these brilliant blurbs. Um, and yours has uh, a delightfully witty, deliciously original and a stringently refreshing rom-com that reads like you're inhaling a zingy citrus cocktail made by Nora Ephron at a party thrown by Dolly Alderton and Beth O'Leary. Now, uh, have those authors thrown you a party yet? And um, would you like to be drinking with them? Uh, I mean, immediately, yes, I would love to be drinking with them. They have not thrown me a party. So I think that's a huge misstep on their behalf. Um, but yeah, look, Catherine Milne, who is my publisher, is amazing. Uh, if only she would just write the whole book for me, if she was going to write blurbs like that. I was so thrilled um, with her zingy prose. It's, it's crazy to have anything that I'm a part of uh, be compared to those amazing writers that she lists because look, Nora Ephron in particular is a big hero of mine and anyone that likes anything kind of funny or sharp or New York or rom-com-y, um, she should be your hero too. Um, the first time I saw that, I, I think I got a bit teary. This whole process has been very emotional. Look, I probably wow. had a couple of those zingy cocktails before I'd seen it as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, and witty and sharp, I, I think are very, I, 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 is definitely on the ball for, for what, what I've been reading in this book. It's, um, it's gosh, it's, just, it's a lot of fun. Um, so for our listeners, um, do you want to uh, paint a, an oral picture of your character, Rory, and her wonderful, disastrous life? Yeah, well, I guess most of her life doesn't appear to have been too disastrous until the start of this book. And I feel like that's almost part of the problem because she's just such an organized person and 
she's moved from Brisbane to Sydney, which is something I did for work as well a long time ago. And she's left her family behind and she started a new and she's trying to be a journalist and she's got like a five-year plan and it's laminated because of course it is. And she's in a relationship and she's been living with Lucas for a while and nothing is kind of progressing beyond that point. So, you know, she does a 12,000 steps every day. She pre-packs her lunch, all traits I wish that I had and I do not have. So despite the moving from one city to another, I really don't have anything else <laughs> in, uh, in common with Rory other than the crossword love. Um, and so she's done all that and nothing is changing. So she decides to take a leaf out of one of the rom-coms, which is normally when you have something, a wacky spanner in the works. And she puts her own spanner in when she decides to follow the signs from the New York Times Daily Crossword, at least for a week and use them to guide her in all her life decisions. And that's when everything kind of unravels at a cracking pace and it had to because the book's only over a week so i really had to stuff her life up um, <laughs> quite quickly uh so it was look it was a lot of fun to do that poor rory yes it's a it's a wonderful car crash to to witness um if, if there is such a thing um <laughs> and i i think i think readers will will relate very closely uh to that that character who is I think at the end of her 20s right and uh she lives in the city and she's in a cool workplace and she's got a, a seemingly cool boyfriend and she does all the things that the internet tells you to do and that your friends tell you to do you know she does the 12,000 steps and she does the meal prep and she probably gets eight hours of sleep and <laughs> she goes jogging and just you're doing all the things. And she's there at work every day at an ungodly hour with a smile on her face, um, working her guts off and just nothing. <laughs> it, it, it achieves nothing. It, it, it seems like she, she's spinning her wheels. And, um, I think, I think it's, it's really refreshing just to see confirmation of this, um, glaring fact for so many of us kind of competing in the rat race of life, but <laughs> um, doing all of that isn't enough by itself to um, make you a, a better perfect human. There's no such thing. And we all need to uh, introduce chaos into our world with crossword clues. <laughs> that's like the nerdiest way I think you could ever introduce chaos into your world. And I'm, I love it. Um, well, I guess that's yeah the thing though. You can feel like you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing and you could probably go for years doing that without realizing that something's missing without realizing that you're not actually happy in what you should be happy in. And that was the job you thought you should be doing. And it seemed incredibly creative and fun when you were a teenager and you're lucky enough to keep doing it. But you, that might not be where you're supposed to be. And I feel like we don't spend a lot of time asking ourselves those questions. I don't know whether that sounds very wanky, me saying that. But it's very easy just to continue on doing something without realising 
that you're not satisfied or getting any joy out of that just because it's easy. So maybe unless we all have laminated lists, we won't realize that we're not progressing at all. Um, and the, the workplace that she is in uh, is a clickbaity, click-hungry uh, online newspaper platform called The Connection, um, which you described very wonderfully. And, and I think you've, you've spent some time in and around <laughs> this, this, this kind of industry. And uh, it was very funny to read your description of it. Uh, tell me about your experiences with it and did you have a lot of fun uh, drawing a description of the connection? It was a lot of fun. Uh, look, I'm going to say stuff that doesn't get me in any trouble <laughs> with anywhere that I have been. Um, because I do do uh, marketing and publicity and I continue to do that. So I need to keep getting money for doing that job by not throwing anyone under the bus. Um, yeah, look, I think it's also just seeing how the media has evolved and how news is consumed and churned out which I think makes me sound like 150 and that I've been around since the printing press but in terms of that like clickbaity kind of buzzfeed stuff and how much people just share that stuff on social media compared to sites like the guardian which you also like share a whole bunch of stuff around as well but they need to offset maybe some of the more serious stuff with stuff that people are going to click through and share. And I think that that has changed the way that people get any news at all. Um, and that's a very interesting thing to look at, but I have been in, I have taken authors around to do interviews in some media offices and they do have giant like, uh, like numbers, like goal screens, almost like what you'd find at the football with how many clicks articles are on and they are aiming to get a certain amount of clicks every day. And that's that, that's those kind of places where you've got to, as a journalist, if you're working there, you've got to be putting out like six articles a day. It's not, it's nothing long form, which is terrifying, but also works. I'll bet. Um, it, it sounds like a, a stressful environment to be in, even though it's it's so glamorized. And yeah, that's it's a it's 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 a it's a stressful and and strange and wonderful position to, to put this character, Rory. Uh, she's also a, a crossword enthusiast. She's a crossword advocate. Uh, are you a crossword advocate, Kimberly? I am. I am. And that is how the book came to be. Uh, I didn't follow the clues um, for a week and just kind of upturn my whole life. But I was, I do the crossword every day, the New York Times crossword puzzle on the app. And I've been doing it for years now. 
And at the time, it was right before Rodham was about to come out, Curtis Sittenfeld's novel, and I love Curtis Sittenfeld. And I was tossing up whether or not I had to get it immediately upon publication or just wait until the next time I was in a bookshop. And I was actually texting someone who would end up being my publisher at the time and asking her if she'd read it yet. And then I was doing the crossword and one of the answers was Hillary Rodham Clinton. And I thought, oh, great. Well, that's what I'm going to do now. I'll just immediately go and buy that book. And so I did that. And then I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if someone based all their life decisions on the crossword? And I banged out the first chapter of the book, which hasn't really changed much since then, and sent it on to my colleague and friend and now publisher and was like, do you think that this is any good? And she was like, keep writing. So that's what I did. So the crossword <laughs> has a lot to answer for. Um, but I just thought the idea was so good, not to toot my own horn, um, that I would be quite annoyed if anyone else <laughs> ever thought of it and wrote it. And then I thought that will do well. And I will be very annoyed that that didn't happen. So, <laughs> you know, regret and crosswords and spite, it really is the motivation for most of the things that I do. Oh, well, that, that sounds really healthy. It's good to hear. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, on the theme of crosswords, I, I have to ask about this ridiculous thing that just, <laughs> and it kind of dovetails into this idea of uh, click farm journalism and, uh, people manufacturing opinion and trying to make you care about things all the time. Uh, Wordle, uh, do you do it? And, and, and why is it so suddenly important? Uh, look, I don't know why it's suddenly so important other than I think it makes us all feel pretty good. I do do it. I wasn't doing it when it first kicked off, but actually there is a group of friends. There's three of us in a group. And every day we, we're on our own leaderboards for the New York Times mini crossword puzzle. So you get a daily every day and then you get a mini. And so we compare our times for doing that. You know, another very healthy thing to do. And they were commenting on their wordles and saying, everyone's doing it. Uh, so yeah, I started doing it. And now I actually think that Wordle has been bought by the New York Times. So maybe that will end up coming on to the app as well. Um, yeah, look, I do it. I don't feel bad if I don't do it every day. I've learned to not uh, put a lot of my self-worth in streaks via crosswords or wordles. Look, it's kind of enjoyable. I think if you like words, it doesn't take that long to do. Maybe you get a dopamine hit from something like that, like what you do when you get a text or someone likes a photo on Instagram. I don't know. You're not, I'm guessing you're not doing them. I, I have done them. And it's I've nice riddled. when you win, but uh, yeah, I, I'm struggling to see just how uh, special it is, but maybe that's, that's me. If it makes people happy, I'm with you. Like, have yourself a wordle. Yeah, look, it feels like one of the healthier things you could get into if you were going to pick up a vice. Uh, but it might be like when yes. Words with Friends was very popular for a bit. Now, I never really got into that at all and maybe wordle is just the next thing that's coming on through that we'll see how long it lasts but look you know these are strange times you, you did just remind me of a, of a wonderful line from your novel which it uh, it was 
something Rory thinks to herself and under the lines of being um, very eager for the next crossword clue and thinking that, gosh, I should, I should take up a much more healthy advice like smoking. Yes. It's, it's the kind of comedy that you just, and that, that is, that <laughs> it just flows throughout the novel. It is, it is laugh out loud funny the, the whole way through. Um, and, and one source of a lot of humour for me is the boyfriend character, Lucas, who I just, I hate him. I hate him so much. <laughs> Do you hate him? Because you, you made him. <laughs> I did make him. Look, he's not my favourite person in the world. Uh, but I didn't necessarily, wasn't my intention to make him so hateable because... I also just wanted to show, I don't want to put like spoilers in. He does plenty of jerky things. But part of me just wanted to show that sometimes relationships just end. They just have their time and they go through and it it doesn't always have to be with a bang that someone does something. It's just you become used to each other and new conversations are more about like milk and cat litter than what they are when you were first going out and you were always interested by that person and you wanted to learn things about them and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of part of it. I think I might've actually wrote him as more loathsome and I had to pare it back a little bit because it's fun to write people that are jerks. And I, I loved doing that, but look, he, he also gave me an excuse to do something that I really wanted to do throughout the book, which was um, food and author name mashups, which is part of his art is like post-it sized food author name things. But the first one in there was Tim Wonton and he posts them on Instagram because he's trying to get like Instagram famous and then maybe get some cartoons in the New Yorker. And I'm very sad to say that uh, I did, draw something once called Tim Wonton, which was a wonton with a ponytail on it. And I thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever done. And I sent that photo to some people and then had to explain why it was Tim Wonton. So some of those traits that he has has come from me, but I didn't go any further than that. But I loved coming up with those names like Agatha Crispie and there's a whole bunch in there. So for all of the, bad stuff about Lucas at least I got to do that oh good and I, I I do think to myself that sometimes when when you hate a character is is, is probably because you you you're noticing traits that probably you recognize in yourself in them being a bit up his own ass <laughs> um and he doesn't realize that he's done that like the him at the start of their relationship, because there is flashbacks, because it is over the course of a week. So without flashbacks, you would have no idea about how things have changed or why some why Rory and Lucas were together to begin with if they were now such different people. Mm. And so he wasn't always like that. So maybe he just started becoming up his ass without him even realising. Or maybe his ass has changed shape. I don't know. Something Something has happened. Okay, so now we're going to jump into uh, an even more silly part of the programming. Uh, we're having this chat in, in context of a, a number of, of debut novelists I'm kind of chatting to. And, uh, you know, it's 
it's Valentine's Day ish, and I'm um, I'm I'm doing a kind of a perfect match thing, right? We're kind of speed dating, uh, you know, uh, a, a date with a debut novelist is what we're calling it. Um, so if you'll allow me, Kim, I've I've, I've got some very silly questions for you, um, uh, just to see if we can uh, be a perfect match for your novel. So question number one, if you had to pair your novel with a beverage, sommelier style, it could be anything, it could be something from the kitchen cupboard, could be posh wine, uh, anything at all, the perfect beverage to pair with your novel, what would that be? Oh, I, you know, I'd love to be fancy and say a posh wine, but I can't even think of a name for one. Uh, I would also, <laughs> I feel like, Beer is always my immediate response to anything, whether someone's talking about drinks or otherwise. Um, but I think for this novel, I think you want um, something delicious and a little tangy and tarty, I would like to think. So I feel like a gin with a yuzu mixer. Strange Love makes some Ooh. great ones and they're very refreshing and um yeah, I just love anything, anything tangy or tarty. And I feel like that would suit this book. Sounds delicious. Okay, question number two. Where would be best suited to read Love and Other Puzzles? Uh, a dusty old library in like a leather armchair or on uh, a tropical beach in a beach chair with your feet up or hunched over a takeaway latte on a crowded inner city bus. Oh, I'm just, now I'm daydreaming about being on a beach um, and doing that <laughs> instead of in my work from with home study. <laughs> yes, please. I mean, the 10 of them. Um, I think it's probably hunched over a coffee on some public transport. I don't suggest that anyone consumes uh, any food or beverages on public transport uh, that smells and no one likes it and, you know, spillage. Uh, but there is a lot of bus scenes in Love and Other Puzzles and a bus driver plays a big part in it. So, you know, I feel like that kind of fits in with everything that's happening in that book. And we should all be nice to bus drivers. <laughs> and then read Yes. Um, so question for you personally, do you say good morning and thank you to every bus driver? I do. Well, not like everyone, because that would imply if I walk up <laughs> on the street, I might start engaging with them. Um, but whenever I get on a bus, I absolutely say good morning. And it from the back or that kind of second door that you either enter or exit from, I like to yell a big thank you um, so that everyone else knows that that's what we should be doing and waving to bus drivers. I think, I think they're amazing. It's such a thankless job. Why not help these people, especially um, these days when they're working and possibly going to get COVID or something just so that we can get to the library or our place of work. Um, so yeah, I think they're amazing. We should all be being very polite and lovely to our bus drivers. Yeah, here, here. Uh, question number three, and this one is extra ridiculous. <laughs> Does your novel spirit animal? That's such a hard one. I feel like I should be well-versed in all kinds of animals because I have a three-year-old. So things should just kind of plop into my head. Um, maybe a wombat. 
I feel like they're pretty single-minded. At least that's what I've gathered from Jackie French books um, in their pursuit of things. And I think that's kind of what Rory is for a bit as well, whether it be carrots or grass. Um, and then the need to curl into a ball in the, in the, um, in the face of, of drama or something confronting. Um, so I think I'm going to go wombat. It's not the most flattering animal, but I think people like wombats, don't they? Do you like wombats? Adorable, but tough. (laughs) I think that's perfect. A wombat, your spirit animal. And uh, final question. What is the ideal date? for your novel is it a spiritual hike in the mountains a a wild night of dancing in the big city or is it curled up at home with a home-cooked meal and a cheesy movie look definitely at home with a cheesy movie i would suggest possibly not a home-cooked meal um if i was doing it because i do not care for cooking i care a lot for eating but I don't take no enjoyment <laughs> in making food whatsoever. Um, so take away, I think, and a cheesy movie, absolutely. I would say I pick a classic like When Harry Met Sally, which is hilarious and would give an excellent indication as to whether or not that person that you're on a first date with is worth continuing to date. Because if they don't find that movie funny, I would say that is a huge red flag. And good of you to have found that out sooner rather than later. Um, yes, Harry and Sa- Sage Harry advice. And Sa- yes, it's not my favourite movie. That would probably be like You've Got Mail, which would be another great one. But maybe save that for someone when you know it's for the, the long haul. Oh, yeah. You do all the Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks films as like oh, a marathon. Absolutely. It's a good way mm. to um, get the measure of someone, I think. What would, <laughs> what would be your cheesy movie, Ben? Uh, I don't know, Space Jam. Oh, oh, that was on TV the other day. I was very excited. Oh, good. <laughs> I'd forgotten um, Bill Murray pops up. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's integral in that film. Uh, um, and thank you for your time and for this uh, brilliant, funny and adorable new novel. May it be the first of many. Uh, Love and Other Puzzles is published by HarperCollins and you can get it right now from Booktopia. Kimberly Olsop, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Silly questions only going forward. Thank you. Deal. Thanks to Megan Albany, Victoria Brooklyn and Kimberly Allsop. You can find links to all the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Stay tuned on Friday for our next podcast where we'll be discussing the books that we are reading at the moment. As always, thanks for listening and never stop reading.